0: You are listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at net slash talks.
1: Well, welcome back, everyone, to the second half of the Art Slash Work Symposium. Um, if, and welcome to those who may be joining us for the second half that weren't here for the panel discussion earlier. Um, If you weren't here, my name is Zach Pearl. I'm an MFA candidate at the Ontario College of Art and Design University in the Criticism and Curatorial Practice program. Uh, We will be discussing in the second half uh, the burgeoning topic of artist research. Um, To give us some insight on that matter, um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, our keynote speaker, Rebecca Duclos, Uh, She's a woman who wears many hats in the contemporary art world. She is working as a curator, an independent writer, and an educator. Um, She's a part-time faculty member in both the art history department at McGill University and the MFA in Studio Arts at Concordia University in Montreal. Uh, In addition, for the past two years, Rebecca has been a visiting research fellow at the Gail and Stephen A. Jaroslawski Institute for Studies in Canadian Art at Concordia, and she recently completed a two-year project called the Compulsive Browse, which specifically looks at the topic of para-academic research um, in artists' work. Uh, Rebecca has also taught in a number of universities abroad, including the University of Manchester in the UK, the Manchester Metropolitan University, also in the UK, Deakin University in Australia, and she spent three years recently as the graduate director of the MFA program in studio arts at the main college of art in the States. Before moving to Montreal in 2005, Rebecca also worked for many years in museums and galleries within Canada and abroad. She holds a PhD in art history and visual culture from the University of Manchester. Uh, she also earned, uh, she earned her MA in museum studies from the University of Toronto, a Bachelor of education in art education from York University and her Bachelor of Arts in Classical Studies and Near Eastern Archaeology also from the University of Toronto. So, I'm about to fall over from intimidation, if you can guess. Um, so, with that, without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming Rebecca Duclos.
2: I'm about to fall over from age. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Thank you for a lovely introduction. Um, Also, thank you to Catherine and Mary um, for extending this invitation to me. All three of you have been incredibly welcoming, and um, I really appreciate the chance to think not so much about artists' research today, but really about this idea of the artist's work. So I just finished teaching an art history course at McGill, this term, on the paradox of the sublime the paradox being the essential unrepresentability of the truly sublime moment, the fact that as soon as we attempt to capture it, depict it, describe it, or relive it, we destroy the very evanescent and transcendent qualities of that moment that allowed it to register sublime in the first place. It took me some time to realize that a parallel course I was teaching in the graduate studio program at Concordia on artists' research was equally concerned with ideas of unrepresentability. Only in this setting, we were speaking about the invisible or indiscernible aspects of the artistic process. Those developmental moments when ideas first coalesce and take amorphous shape. A moment that may or may not evolve or resolve itself into what we eventually identify as an artwork. Oops, sorry. Every time I ask the MFA students to articulate for me this feeling of coalescence the nascent thoughts, experiences, connections, inspirations, or accidents that gave rise to what might later have become a work, they became understandably frustrated with their seeming inability to recapture the complexity of the developmental process. What counts as research became the key question for us all. When did the work really begin? Over time, I think they sensed that it was, in fact, the impossibility of this recuperative and expressive task that I was asking them to confront And so within this confrontation arose an acceptance for the art history and the studio students and for myself, an acceptance of a certain kind of failure, the sublime failure of language, of image, of sense, to capture a moment of profound encounter. In both courses, I found myself exploring from diverse perspectives the same intellectually challenging concepts of the limits of representation and the incapacities of language. This for me is where the idea of the indiscernible becomes a necessary aspect not only of the knowledge not only of knowledge production but also of studio production. And it is in this murky liminal space where I would like to suggest that we place at least for today the concept of the artist's work. Of course work is both a noun and a verb. Look at her work we say. It's so sturdy and well built. But also Look at her work. She's so determined, so natural in the way that she moves. Most often in the museological arena, we are concerned with work as a noun. We pay for it, we care for it, we make space for it, we interpret it, and we admire it. But with such ambitious projects as 9 to 5, which I'm about to argue is part of a lineage of institutional readings where artistic process is framed as a kind of product, the verb work Takes center stage as an active practice. There is no physical work, no singular object that is there for us to admire. Rather, the artist working away is what we are meant to encounter. Their work becomes the work. And this, of course, is where my personal interest lies. After two years as a fellow at the Jaroslawski Institute thinking about the work of artists' research and months in the classroom trenches of the sublime, I feel privileged to have been given the opportunity today to ask, where does the artist's work actually begin and end in both its verbal and its nominal forms? When artists are at work, where are they at? In terms of imminence and transcendence, or as it was for Immanuel Kant, the struggle between the apprehensible and the comprehensible, you can see how this question becomes very interesting indeed. My studio students would ask, how can anyone see the working process of my mind as an idea takes shape? And my art history students would ask, how can anyone know how that idea, once it has taken shape, will affect another person's mind? How can we measure, illustrate, gauge, or guess at the ever-expanding reach that the work has as it works upon the artist and as it works upon us. In overly simplified terms, we might imagine the subtitle of the 9-to-5 project acting as a kind of visual guide to the anterior and posterior transformation of the idea of work. On the one side, we have artists and their evanescent, durational, multimodal thought processes the gestational period in which the immateriality of ideas becomes a work, while on the other side we have the capital W, manifested work, the art object as it eventually appears, that continues to operate along a trajectory where its now material state continues to affect an evanescent, durational, multimodal experience for an audience. There's a lovely parallel between the intensely private work of the artist gone public and the decidedly public encounter of the work, which then again becomes private. Barnett Newman famously described this private-public interrelationship between artist and audience in his seminal essay, The Sublime is Now. He said quite simply, The viewer of my paintings relates to me when I made the painting. And so, if in our simplistic word diagram, we propose that artists and work at their outermost edges begin with and give way to experiences that are ultimately quite private and individual, that leaves at as the space where the public negotiation of these private experiences might take place. Theoretically, the processual mandate of the 9-to-5 project proposes that, for all assembled, the gallery can act as this parenthetical space of atness where a confluence of private research and speculation for both artists and audience may emerge through public observation, discussion, and contemplation. The hope is that an understanding of the artwork might come about, dare I say for both artist and audience, if we begin to understand just how that work arises in the first place. This is a worthy ideal in the way the pursuit of the sublime is a worthy endeavor. And this is why I love what this project promises. For it promises and embraces that certain kind of failure that I mentioned before. Alongside the failure of language to describe and the failure of images to represent, we now have the failure of process to reveal. And these are all significant failings. For in this space of lack, in this parenthetical space of an always unfinished artistic process, we come together as practitioners and publics to think about how complex the notion of artists at work really is. So here's what I propose we do in the parenthetical space of this response that exists in a way as a whispered aside, a digressionary appendage to the 9to5 project as a whole. Let's suspend for a moment this discursive concern with atness, the sublime boundlessness of the work and the museum's paradoxical interest in both freeing up and yet in framing it. Let's suspend this concern for a few moments to look at some examples of more materially present practices of artistic disclosure. Because the 9 to 5 project relies for its effectiveness on the conceit of artists at work, I'd like to think about how the two tropes of liveness and what we might call creative genius have been configured within institutional constructs. I'm going to focus particularly on presentations of the artist's body and the artist's studio. In looking first at the notion of the performative artist as work, and second at a particular filmic tradition of the artist with their work, I think we might better understand part of the museological lineage that the 9 to 5 project, whether consciously or not, is drawing upon. There are numerous ways we could choose to talk about the phenomenon of the artist as the work of art. Phenomenological, anthropological, political, each of these perspectives would illuminate crucial aspects of this genre and would certainly shed some light on the museological framement of aesthetic activity that I'm interested in pursuing. But I'm going to try and focus quite tightly, if I can, on the role of the artist's body as a site of what authors such as Amelia Jones would call liveness. And I'm going to suggest that it is through this presentation of liveness, this performance of a temporally present subject who also becomes a spatially present object, that the artist negotiates publicly both their subjective and their symbolic value as artists. In an obvious way, this subjective and symbolic presence reemphasizes the double meaning of the word work for us. The artist is at work, being the work And this work is about pushing the cultural conventions of display in order to animate what is normally inanimate. For Gilbert and George performing the singing sculpture in 1969, the object of observation is now not made by the artists, it is the artists themselves. I think context here is important singing sculpture was launched in Britain during and in reaction to the era of Anthony Caro's stern, welded steel, masculine modernism and the chaotic, spontaneous fluxus actions that Gilbert and George once described as dirty. This project allowed the two artists ostensibly to make their own kind of personal, personable, delightful, and well-groomed object that rejected both the hardness of Caro and the messiness of fluxus. Instead... Singing sculpture operated in an entirely new arena in which the artists were constantly present within and as the artwork. It was humorous, it was ironic, and it was resolutely real in a way that Gilbert and George felt was necessary at that time. A year later, in her 1970 performance piece, Mirror Check, Joan Jonas stood nude with a small round mirror and examined details of her body while the audience watched from a close distance. The spectators were unable to see the reflected images. Jonas would describe and comment upon what she observed as she moved the mirror around her own body. Here, the artist as both subject and object is again apparent, but now Jonas is both object and guide. She described this as being a, quote, shamanistic idea. The performer goes through the actions so that the audience can experience them also. It takes you into a space that you otherwise wouldn't be in. So the questions I think Jonas Jonas poses are, what does it mean to know an artwork when the work is the artist herself? Do we understand the piece that is her body more intimately now that she has taken us into a space that is so deeply personal? How is the figure of the artist, the performer, the woman, culturally constructed through regimes of language and of vision? Jonas is here stretching the conventions of spectatorship and voyeurism. But for my purposes, I'd like to suggest that she is also asking us to think about authorship and understanding. What is our position as interpreters of the work of art? Are we dependent on some kind of a guide to help us gain more intimate knowledge of artworks? Does this guide need to be the artists themselves? All of these questions Are of course problematized even further when the work of art in question is another human being. The commodification and objectification of humans as exotic artworks of a kind, collected specimens of unique cultures or exemplars of an indigenous typology, was, as you can probably guess, the subject of scathing critiques by James Luna in his 1987 artifact piece and Coco Fusco and Guillermo Gomez-Pena in their 1990s performance, Undiscovered Amerindians. In these projects, the subject-object status of the artist is brought into a much more charged political and postcolonial frame where the idea of liveness is contrasted to the captiveness or deadness of the specimen or the artifact By re-inhabiting the position of the object that is looked at through an inversion of the spectatorial position, Luna, Fusco, and Gomez-Pena look back at us, or, through the denial of their gaze, cause us to look back upon ourselves. In both cases, we are denied the neutral subject-to-object relationship that typically defines the museological experience of viewing an artifact or artwork. Instead, we are forced to engage with the artist as artifact in a newly formed intersubjective relationship that has very deep consequences indeed. In these brief examples, it's important to underscore the significance of the artist's body as the site of contestation and conversation. It seems simple to say, but these pieces work precisely because the question of where does the work begin and end resists any kind of simple answer. By literally inhabiting the work, these artists now extend the question to ask, where does the human being begin and end? This brings me to the 1995 piece entitled The Maybe that was originally enacted at the Serpentine Gallery in London by actress Tilda Swinton with the assistance of artist Cornelia Parker and producer Joanna Scanlon. For seven consecutive days, eight hours a day, Surrounded by display cases filled with autobiographical objects from famous historical figures, Swinton herself lay motionless, with eyes closed, in a raised glass casket, a contemporary sleeping beauty in jeans and deck shoes, who was subjected to intense scrutiny and speculation by over 25,000 people in one week. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to slow down for a minute and ask you to consider this idea of liveness and the attention that we pay to the figure of the artist when they take particularly bold steps to critique their role as subjective and symbolic entities. I'd like to share with you excerpts from an unpublished conversation between performance art scholar Amelia Jones and the originator of the Serpentine Project, Project Tilda Swinton. I'm going to read at length from Swinton's response to Jones, who had asked the actress to reflect on the origins of the piece. And then I'd like to... Just take a moment before we switch into the next uh, section on thinking about the studio. So Swinton writes, First and most significantly, Derek Jarman died. He had been ill with HIV infections and aid-related diseases for a very long time. We had all been aware for a couple of years at least that he wouldn't be around for very much longer, that his filmmaking at least was slowly coming to an end. Quite apart from the natural and usual impact of losing an extremely close and beloved friend, his dying over these preceding years had begun in me a set of questions ranging from the practical to the metaphysical to the critical. Naturally, writes Swinton, having lost my mentor, my teacher in filmmaking, my author, the question of my own call to authorship raised its head. I had always been a writer, went to university as a poet, but stopped writing the moment I started my degree and I wondered at this point if it wasn't time to reconnect with my own potential to generate work myself, from within my own imagination and voice and intellect, as such as a primary primary creative force, without a collaborative conversation such as the one I had developed with Derek and our colleagues. At the same moment, it also occurred to me that I was becoming impatient with a preoccupation in the art world with all things unfigurative and specifically non-human. The emblematic gesture embraced by the art world of the time was without doubt the shark in a box, the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living by Damien Hirst that was exhibited with much attention in 1991 at the Saatchi Gallery. It was a piece of work which I admired unreservedly, not least in the context of its title but the overwhelming celebration of which I found disconcerting. It felt as if the critical authority was only too happy to laud a figure in a frame just as long as it was not human. I began to ask myself if it were not also the fact that such an object would also have to be not living to boot. Lastly, I was at a point in my life when I began to think about having a child The year after we presented the maybe in Rome, in fact, I had twins. I started to contemplate the encasement of the child in utero, the vulnerability, security, passivity, activity of this stage of life, this limbo state, this promise, this maybe. So in a nutshell, these were some of the questions with which I found myself beset at this moment of crossroads. I asked myself to propose a gesture a hybrid between that essence which I value most in live performance, namely, that kinetic experience of human beings when they are all wholly, as in every part of them, present together in the same space at the same time and in the thrall of time and the unexpected, with that essence which I value most in cinematic performance, namely, the possibility of the scrutiny by the viewer of the unwatched who cannot watch back. I began to conjure the sense that at the heart of both these scenarios is a rich seeding ground for real compassion and understanding between people. So the interview goes on at some length, and Swinton continues to talk about the implications that her gesture had, not only for herself, but for her many viewers. There's a huge amount to say about this project, but suffice it here... um, to comment that I think Swinton's The Maybe asks us to consider in an even more profound way the question, where does the work begin and the human end? How do we speak about process when we confront a piece such as this? What space of atness between the artist and the work has Swinton created at the Serpentine? So I'd like to use Swinton's reference to her interest in both live performance and to the cinematic as a segue into the next section in which I'd like to talk about material um, that is more filmic in nature. So for the latter portion of this response to the 9 to 5 project, I'd like to broaden our gaze now to include not only the conceptual space that surrounds the figure of the artist, their liveness, but also the physical space from which we have traditionally been trained to imagine the artist emerging, the studio. I'm particularly interested in thinking about how the site of the studio, like the site of the body, has been one of the domains in which artists have both shaped and been shaped by conceptions of work. I'd like to argue that it was not only Daniel Buran's well-known essay, The Function of the Studio, that gave this space an oddly privileged role as the genuine site of artistic and aesthetic production, but it was also a prior series of artist-at-work films made from the late 1950s to the late 1970s that worked to solidify a public image of artistic genius at work. These images that not unsurprisingly privileged the artist's live body in action captured the public imagination at the very time that paradoxically the solo artist working in supreme isolation was actually being dismantled as a reality. Think of the he-man Jackson Pollock alone in his painting barn, and then think of Andy Warhol in the city presiding over the buzz of activity at the factory. And this is the 30-year span that's pretty much covered by these film excerpts that I want to show you. So to reiterate, in the context of responding to the curatorial premise of 9 to 5, I want to hone in on the two aspects of aesthetic production that have for years provided the two most publicly produced signifiers— connecting the figure of the artist to the emergence of their work, their body as the live site of aesthetic output, and the studio as the sacred birthplace of creative genius. While departing from these metaphors and models significantly, the 9 to 5 project nevertheless gained significance, I want to suggest, by enfolding and then re-energizing aspects of this historical lineage within its contemporary curatorial program. So here is Buren at his most direct. These are the opening lines of his 1971 essay. Of all the frames, envelopes, and limits usually not perceived and certainly never questioned, which enclose and constitute the work of art, picture frame, niche, pedestal, palace, church, gallery, museum, art history, economics, power, etc., there is one rarely even mentioned today that remains of primary importance, the artist's studio. While the time Tamburin was writing, the studio, or the artist's atelier, had a long tradition and mythic prominence in the art world. But it was a prominence that was surrounded by a kind of mystique. Particularly within the modern era, the studio was seen as a place where only the initiated could enter and interpret the studio's inner workings. It's no accident, for example, that this 1998 reprint of Michael Freed's best-known essays and articles from the 1960s had, for its cover, the picture of Freed holding court in Anthony Caro's studio. But I'm interested not so much in the studio as a stereotype, but rather as an archetype. Here now is Buran in a footnote. He says, I'm well aware that, at least at the beginnings of and sometimes throughout their careers, All artists must be content with squalid hovels or ridiculously tiny rooms, but I am describing the studio as an archetype. Artists who maintain ramshackle workspaces despite their drawbacks are obviously artists for whom the idea of possessing a studio is a necessity. Thus they often dream of possessing a studio very similar to the archetype described here. Now, aside from Viren's semi-patronizing tone that sounds quite outdated in our post-studio culture, these notions of the necessity, the dream, the possession of the archetypal studio was precisely the linguistic and imagistic currency that drove the production of a number of short films made in the mid-20th century. These films gave viewers privileged access to the artist at work, and in so doing extended the idea of studio as archetype outward to encompass any space in which the artist could be portrayed in the thrall of their creative process. Whether they were filmed in a studio theater, as we'll see with Pablo Picasso, in a recording studio, as with Yves Klein, or in a real studio, even though it was outdoors, as with Jackson Pollock, these artists performed their genius on camera, their body moving in space, promising a kind of special access to the work as both object and event. As a critical tool in granting this access, according to Caroline Jones, the camera became a ready partner to the other machines in the studio, part of a collaborative production site in which the systems and mechanisms of creation had been exposed. In terms of this exposure, the figure of the artist, their systems and mechanisms were of course Literally exposed to the public through the filmic medium. But I think Jones is hinting at something greater here. To expose something akin to genius at work was to imagine that the inner machinations of the artist's mind could be revealed, that somehow film could capture the conceptual work in addition to the physical work that allowed the capital W work of art to emerge before our very eyes. Jones describes how the verbal and visual discourses of the time paled as, ca- as causal or explanatory tools next to the ephemeral field of practice, where desires were acted upon, decisions were made, accidents were permitted, and objects were produced. The documentary film, she writes, parades its devotion, its filial relationship to reality, and yet it necessarily participates in a process of difference, the deferral of meaning elsewhere to a prior reality that can never be captured on film. Now, this prior reality is exactly the imminent, indiscernible activity of work to which I referred at the beginning of this talk. Let's see now how some mid-century filmmakers attempted to capture this live. I won't say very much about these excerpts. I'd rather that you get a feel for the genre before we return to this idea of atness that I suggest these films attempt to enframe. So let's start with an excerpt uh, from Le Mystère Picasso by Clouseau.
3: Alors, qu'est-ce qu'on fait Eh bien, on another fait un autre, non À moins que tu tired, fatigué. Fatigué, ça me plaît. Et continuer toute la nuit, si tu veux. Bon, on y va. Claude Oui Qu'est-ce qu'il y a dans l'appareil 150 mètres. Ça fait 5 minutes. Ça te Alors, en noir ou en couleur En couleur, tout c'est plus drôle. Bien. Et qu'est-ce que tu fais N'importe quoi. Comme d'habitude Mais attends, tu vas voir. Je vais te une surprise. Bien. Bien, allons y Bon, alors écoute, on s'entend bien. S'il arrive quoi que ce soit, tu coupes. De mon côté, s'il arrive quoi que ce soit, je coupe, parce qu'il y a très peu de pellicules number bon, numéro. You're ready? Attention. Tu es prêt Oui. Mother. T'as
2: Eve Klein uh, who was probably one of the best collaborators Uh, and this is a a soundless piece of um, a film of his making one of his fire uh, series with two very willing models flame retardant that they're being sprayed with. (laughs) It's interesting in both these films, before I go on, you, you, I really want you to pay attention to there are moments where it, the whole thing is supposed to seem so kind of natural and so spontaneous, and yet there are these cues of, um, you know, the, obviously in the Picasso film. There was a film crew filming the film crew filming Picasso, for us to even have seen that. And these little moments where the models will look the camera in the eye are this sort of fake gesture. And so um, it's almost like the film can't hold on to its desire for complete access to the artist. It it seems to be broken up by these these little moments where we realize that this is a, a kind of staged illusion. Hey, here's a fragment from the beginning of Hans Namath's film in which he granted, was granted sort of special access to Jackson Pollock's famous process. Um, and I, again, I won't say too much about it here, but m- many of you might know that uh, it wasn't long after Namath and Picasso engaged in these film sessions that. Um, it really wasn't long after at all Uh, Pollock took his first drink after being on the wagon for some time after the final scene um, of this film and within two years uh, he was dead many people have all kinds of theories about uh, the fact that Namath sort of exposed this this uh, this process and this mysterious practice of of Pollux and that somehow um, that intervention in in his genius uh, was what actually caused this break uh, in his practice um, you know again, there are lots of theories about that, but I just I want to reemphasize how uh, the, even the lore of this of the making of this film has succeeded the film for all of these years and just how uh, how both invasive and yet exciting this revelatory process was.
3: A method of painting is the natural growth out of a need. I want to express my feelings rather than illustrate them. A technique is just a means of arriving at a statement. I am painting, I have a general notion as to what I am about. I can control the flow of the paint. There is no accident, just as there is no beginning and no end. Sometimes I lose a painting. But I have no fear of changes, of destroying the image, because a painting has a life of its own, I try to let it live.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: As you might have noticed, of um, the music as well. Uh, Feldman's score was written uh, in response to seeing um, the, the film being made. So, in, in a sense, there's sort of a, a you know a, a double um, idea of direct access to practice that we not only are seeing Pollock, but then we have Feldman sort of reacting to Pollock. Um, and it, the, I'm going to show you another scene in a moment from this film. It's actually fairly long. I can't remember how long exactly, but um, it has it has various uh, what do I want to say, movements almost and um, each one of them sort of tries to explore a different, uh, a, a different point of access into Pollock's practice and, um, you know, Namath was also, uh, I think, very careful to have voiceover at some point, at other points music, at other points complete silence and um, all of this is a, a, about sort of in framing as I've been saying, this aesthetic activity uh, by sometimes allowing us to to even more directly access it by just having Pollock's work happen in front of us uh, and other times were sort of brought into this consideration um, through either his own voice or Feldman's music. So, again, these are very carefully constructed uh, uh, visual documents um, to these artists' practices. I'm going to go back and... uh, actually uh, show you another Picasso film and um, you'll see why in a moment. I won't say very much about it. It's by Paul uh, Hessertz. Show, if possible, the man not just in the act of painting, but what's happening inside, what takes place in his face. How could I show that? One sleepless night, I suddenly hit on the idea of showing him through glass. And when I suggested this idea to him, he jumped on it. He said it was a great idea. Now we might think that this was written by Heseritz, but in fact, uh, it was actually written by Hans Namuth who seems to imply that this technique was new to him when he made the film about about Pollock. Um, nevertheless, I think it's important uh, to you know, think about this desire uh, by both directors to somehow show not just the face, but what lies behind the face. Um, and, of course, that's what made this next sequence uh, in the Pollock film so famous.
3: This is the first time I am using glass as a medium. My first painting on glass, and I started another
2: one. Some of you may know that that second glass painting is um, actually in Ottawa at the NGC. Um, It was purchased by the gallery some years ago, purchased or donated—I'm not sure—but anyway, we have that. Here, So for me, it's actually within this, this break, within Pollock's admission that he lost contact with his work, that I sense what a profound intensity these films set up for us as viewers, and the version of a genius at work that they so significantly and effectively institutionalized. The illusion of unmitigated contact with the artistic process is emphasized over and over again in these films, through the use of close-up shots, the focus on hands in action, or the gesture that brings the work into being. The incorporation of glass allows the camera to be both separate from and bonded to the artist. Inside the camera's lens, we as spectators become the eye staring back at the artist, perhaps even acting as a proxy for the inner eye that is the artist's own. As Namuth says, through this witnessing of the artist at work, our desire to see what is happening inside is fulfilled. Or at least, I want to suggest only partially fulfilled. These films are not unlike Joan Jonas's mirror check, in that they deliver a visual and linguistic experience where the artist as guide essentially reveals themselves to us, and yet, at the same time, the view that we receive will always be partial, fragmentary, edited, and inadequate. To move towards a conclusion that will bring us back to the 9 to 5 project and its updated version of the artist's liveness and their genius at work, I want to show you two last excerpts that depict a very different kind of artistic archetype that focuses less on the output of the active artist engaged in creative labor and construction, and more on the contemplative hiatus where presumably an equally important, although less visible kind of aesthetic work is taking place. In the first excerpt from Hans Richter's Datascope, Picasso and Pollock's vigorous painting on glass is replaced by Marcel Duchamp's gentle hammer tap, followed by a long draft on his pipe. In the second and last excerpt, Jorgen Leth captures Andy Warhol at his creative best, eating a hamburger. This is Datascope. It's a poem that uh, Marcel Duchamp wrote. I think they're supposed to be sound. and that's uh, one of many scenes that he filmed of Andy Warhol. whole thing goal because it's a very exciting ending.
3: Warhol and uh, I just finished eating uh, a
1: hamburger
2: (laughs) only Jackson Pollock knew that's all he had to do Um, okay so how do we wrap this up how do we reconcile if we do the artist as cubicle worker and the studio as office with what we have seen in the past hour What have the curators of 9 to 5 done to the institutional constructs of liveness and genius that have been the tropes of artistic creativity for such a long time? How have they handled both the archetypal legacies of the work in process and the stereotypical images of the artist in progress? I'd like to propose that into this parenthetical space of Duchamp's long pull on his pipe and Warhol's methodical ingestion of his hamburger, that an alternative image of the artist at work has emerged, which the 9 to 5 project has playfully and consciously incorporated within their contemporary official scenario. This image of the artist in a state of mundane contemplation or focused distraction or unconscious scanning is closer to what theorists such as Siegfried Krakar, Walter Benjamin, and Anton Ehrensweig have described as the ultimate modern mode of apperception, or reception in a state of distraction. This notion of the artist as office worker is, I think, a wry and cogent commentary on the artist as producer that is at once ironic, but also very observant. Things have changed dramatically in the art world. On the one hand, we have Art 21 videos instead of Namath films now, and on the other hand, we have Che Ching Shae's year-long time clock project instead of Gilbert and George's singing sculpture. Where we had Picasso vigorously drawing onto glass, we now have Tilda Swinton sleeping peacefully inside it. Ideas surrounding artistic genius and liveness are evolving rapidly, and I think that the 9 to 5 project tries to address these changes in some way. I had said earlier that, theoretically, the processual mandate of the project promises a certain kind of failure, alongside the failure of language to describe and the failure of images to represent we could also witness the failure of process to reveal. Even in its tongue-in-cheek approach, inspired and informed as it is by a legacy of imagistic practices, the Artists at Work project continues to make us wonder in a potentially sublime way where the work really begins and where it really ends. So I can't see any of you but uh, (laughs) I'm happy to take some questions or I've been told that I can call upon the curators also to uh, come and join me and answer some questions that might be about the project as a whole because as I said this part of the talk is really um, a kind of digressionary appendage to what was and what has been uh, a very elaborate and very involved project for all the people who've worked on it
4: Uh, I mean, one thing that I really found interesting about talking about the body as this site of labor, mm. you know, and the site of toil, and you know, you see, Pollock kind of hunched over, mm-hmm. you know, with a cigarette hanging out of his yeah. mouth, and at one point, you know, he throws it away. Yeah. So you know that you know there's part of his brain that isn't kind of yep. you know wholly engaged into a yep. into his practice. What I you know what I really find interesting about the cubicle setting mm-hmm. is that you know, the type of work that we associate with cubicles is immaterial. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about the production of information. Yeah. But here, you know, in the cubicle, you've you've mm-hmm. uh, kind of inserted the, the production of objects, in this case artwork, mm-hmm. uh, but with the idea, like, you know, kind of keeping in mind that immaterial labor,
0: mm-hmm.
4: that doesn't really... You know, that doesn't really kind of exist. You know, even in office workers, you know, there are reports that come out all the time talking about, you know, how sitting in chairs eight hours a day is going to kill you in the long Mm -hmm. run. You know, Mm -hmm. you get carpal tunnel in your wrists, you know. I'm assuming that Graham, like, you know, working with puppets all the time, you know, your hands must ache at the end of the day, right? So uh, I was just kind of wondering Mm -hmm. about how you saw kind of the body as this kind of receptacle of labor Mm -hmm. that's often kind of, you know, often not quantified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, the work still happens in the body. You know, there's no such thing as work that happens without kind of this physical context. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are a couple of answers. I mean, one is... um and I, I think this is why the, the the Warhol piece, as you know sort of humorous as it is, I think is also a really interesting piece to think about because uh, you know one of the points I'm trying to make, both about artists' work and also what I've been thinking about in terms of their research, is that um, it often happens in the most distracted of times, you know when the body is actually not laboring um, in ways that are sort of stereotypically about creativity uh, that in fact you know, often when we're walking or ironing or doing whatever, um, that's when these really essential ideas start to come into play. So there, there's a there's a process, and there's a there's a process, and there's a process. Right? Part of the process is conceptual; uh, it's immaterial, um, but the body obviously is involved uh, in the same way that the mind has to be involved. Uh, and then those processes become more and more let's say visible, I mean they rise to a visible surface and that's when we, you know, suddenly that's when we, the museum and the gallery start to get really interested in, in the work but so much of the labor um, that happens uh, amongst all the artists I know uh, much of it is completely invisible and yet um, they they have to, they're inhabiting this, this space uh, more often than we acknowledge and um, I can follow that up with a sort of second it's a bit of a, a non-sequitur but it was something I was thinking about when Pam Patterson asked the question about the politics of the cubicle and I wanted to mention um, Michel Certeau who is another theorist whom I haven't talked about today but he has a wonderful conception um, that, um, an idea of what do I want to say a, yeah, a concept of something called la perruque which oddly enough translates as the wig in French but um, to engage in la perruque uh, of worker will do their own creative work on the boss 's time so that 's like if you 're writing a love letter instead of a memo or you 're using the lathe to make your own furniture um, and deotto talks about this as um, not only a very poetic and creative practice for the individual but it 's also something that he said is, is is strategic and subversive and tactical and it 's a way um, for individuals who are let's say cubicalized um, in, in you know, contemporary times to actually <laughs> steal time from the boss, not money, not objects, but time, because time is so precious to this idea of being able to think your own thoughts, um, which in itself can be a very political position. Uh, so I just I wanted to mention that, that I think that's another side of this um, kind of idea of immaterial labor uh, that, that has a, a much stronger uh, political bent.
5: Uh, I have a couple of comments and a couple of questions. Sure. What? Oh, you're recording it. That's right. How do we get the podcast? Oh, the uh, AGO? Red site? Oh, okay. Oh, on the blog? Oh, terrific. Great. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, For those of us in the OCAD uh, um, graduate program, I think you... Wonderfully summed up our entire year with words and with Good. images. So, <laughs> I have thank you very much. I have a question for the nine to five curators, Great. and also I have a question for you. But um, just as a comment, um, well, I guess maybe it's more of a question for you. Um, one of these uh, this year, I had a professor. We had a professor who uh, was stringent, saying that uh, artists working in a studio is not uh, artist practice. It's not. And so we called her on it, I'm I'm not uh, paraphrasing her quite badly, but she was very adamant that when an artist is working in a studio, that is not research. And I brought her, I called her on it, called her on it, some of us in the class called her on it, and she never could explain it, and she just sort of shut it down, and I suffered academically for that challenge. (laughs) So what would you say to her, Rebecca?
2: She's going to listen to this podcast and now I'm going to be in trouble. Exactly. She should be here. And she's not. All right. The diplomatic thing to say is that everybody has their own version of research. Um, But, uh, you know, again, I won't speak for for artists, um, but I will speak for those artists whom I've interviewed and talked to and I spend a lot of time with. Um, You know, I think research starts the minute that you wake up and go to sleep. I mean... To for me, and maybe this is really you know something that I need to 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 think about myself, but I don't actually see anything as not being a kind of research, and I don't mean that to sound like a cop out answer, but um uh the whole tradition of psychoanalysis would tell you that every minute you're dreaming is actually a kind of work right and so um I'm definitely one of those believers, not only in uh kind of even subliminal thought processes as being a very important part of research. But I would also say that uh, physical engagement, bodily engagement with the world, a phenomenological engagement, is definitely part of um, a physical and material research process uh, that you engage with as a human being um, who is embodied and that, that that plays into your work the the bigger question for me and the difficulty with um, you know the joyous difficulty with all the people with whom I work is like, how to describe that process is really difficult. Um, how to say when a work kind of first came into being um, is very difficult. How do you talk about things like intuition, chance accident, luck synchronicity Um you know, I've gone so far as to sort of theoretically argue that these are legitimate methodologies right, to, for you to think about um, how it is that your various methods of acquiring and processing inform- and information um, might come about because of a kind of openness that allows you to enjoy synchronous events constantly and that they push you in a kind of direction where you think, I've got I've to do something with this. Um, so I, I, that's that's my my very uh, my own personal view that um, I think I think putting putting boundaries and strictures on the idea of research um, is difficult, and I can say that from a position of privilege because I don't work in the dean's office. I'm not, you know I'm not the one who's having to write uh, a curriculum that, that that has to say research begins and ends here but I know that there are people for whom this is an enormous task and that they have to come up with some kind of rubric um, particularly, and I don't want to get into this, please don't make me talk about this, particularly in terms of these PhD programs for studio artists uh, which are um, emerging rapidly. So um, those are places where uh, institutional frameworks around what is research and what is not research are having to be made um, in, in, my, in my line of work, I don't have to worry about those kinds of questions, but it's a, very, it's a very important and interesting one that you asked. So thanks for bringing that up.
5: Thank you for the answer. Um, and my question now goes to the curators, uh, Mary, Catherine, and Zach. Um, I, we were sort of talking about this last night, and some of us uh, were talking about this, and I think, how do you guys feel about, because the, the 9 to 5 project was uh, about the three artists in their cubicles, but it was very much about you guys being there so your presence you being there so it's, it's not just the three artists in the, in the cubicles but it's also having you three there or you know, two of you there and somebody doing something else but you guys were always around and so w- w- you were very much part of I think the performance or the, 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 the process because if you weren't there for those three days at all I think it would be a very different feel so I'm just wondering if, how you guys felt about being, being so present do you want to take that, Catherine?
6: We talked a little bit about this um, previously during our discussion, that when we had set up for the project, our intention was not necessarily to be present at all times, but to be available at all times for the artists so that their experience with the project ran as smoothly as possible. Um, but over the course of the actual project, I think us as visitors wanted to be present a lot of the time that we really enjoyed the environment and Ended up engaging in a lot of conversations that we felt very privileged to take a part in So in a, in some ways we basically encroached on what the artists were doing in order to learn more and have discussions and For myself there were some conflictions about that about being present as much as we were uh, but given how unique an opportunity it was for us, I have to say we took advantage of it.
7: Um, I think for for me, the, the interesting maybe, I don't know, we had to act as, or we felt like we had to lead by example, perhaps for some visitors, and be a mediator between artists and uh, and the visitors because we didn't want to put all the pressure on the artist because this was we knew a new experience for at least two of the artists um, so and we were I think Michelle had uh, advised us to maybe lead by example you know in, in talking with the artists and, uh, and then maybe visitors would come up and like also ask a question they would see people talking to the artists and animating the space so um, yeah
1: Sorry, Zach. Um, I I actually and it was very unexpected. Uh, felt very conflicted about being in the space. Um, I for for me it felt um, also that I was I was being very I was becoming a supervisor to what the artists were doing, and I didn't want them to feel like I was. Looking over their shoulder to make sure that they were saying the correct things to the visitors, um, but uh, yeah, so so for me it was actually very hard um, trying to negotiate how much time I was going to spend in that space. But I think by the end of the project, and I did I talked about this a little bit in in the first half too. It, it became clear that Mary Catherine and I were participants within the project, whether we viewed ourselves as that or not, and that we weren't taking away from the artists because we were delivering, we were giving a different perspective as being the organizers of the project that actually many of the visitors enjoyed and felt that they had a more uh, well-rounded understanding of what was going on. And and also us, like Catherine was saying, uh, we, be, we became visitors ourselves. We, we were part of this dialogue and this experience that was evolving. And so I even though I... I continued to grapple with that, I really felt by the end of it that it was necessary um, for a lot of the visitors to give them a a fuller experience of of how this came into being and understand what we were doing, that we were there in the space as well.
7: Sorry, just on a a lighter note too, I think because we were students within the AGO as well, for those three you know, consecutive days, we also didn't have anywhere really to go. (laughs) I mean, we, we could, we went down, you know, we would hang out in the cafe, work on our laptops, do emailing, and then we'd be like, oh, well, you know, let's go up to the meeting table in the nine to five space and hang out there. Um, So, so we were kind of floating strangely, like in the institution and people, visitors would think we were actual staff and And um, I think there's a kind of an interesting maybe balance there, being students floating within this larger institution, um, which had, yeah, lots of other... We could probably talk about that extensively as well. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Jumping
8: off those comments, I was considering maybe a curator as a sort of filmmaker... Uh, in the way that I think that your conscious involvement in how you choose to communicate the artist's interests uh, takes on its own perceptive role and perhaps arguably distances uh, the viewer or the visitor from uh, engaging in the artist's process. Um, and I was, I'm really interested in your research on the artist as a sort of way to demythologize uh, their status Especially for people who come through the museum who aren't necessarily uh, aspiring artists or artists themselves, but who frequently associate the artists with these highly romantic uh, perceptions of them as uh, you know you see in films, and in the way that this nine to five exhibition is is so so far distance from that vision in the sense that you're using something that is perceived of as the most banal position that you can have within society and then engaging that with uh, something that we typically see on the other side of the spectrum which is that of the artist what do you see your role in research in terms of the way that we have constructed mythologies and do you fear or do you hear expressed interest in perhaps the dangers of revealing what is what has been concealed for so long and in another way I think that you are aware that often you will confront something that is relatively sublime in the sense that it is beyond words, we cannot grasp it. Mm-hmm. So in, in an attempt to demythologize it, you're also encountering limitations of revealing the artist's yeah. creative process.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: And you know, it's... Uh, um, I, have, I could just have a few word answer to that. It's called the Heisenberg Principle. <laughs> um, and I, I, I mean that jokingly, but um, a, a number of authors have obviously talked about this, and, and in scientific parlance, Um, uh, there's something called the observer effect and essentially as soon as you engage yourself in an experiment, you actually change the conditions of that experiment and that goes all the way to the subatomic level. Like uh, Electrons will actually know that you're there and they won't behave the way you thought they were going to behave. So um, I think I mentioned at one point in the talk this kind of paradox that the museum is engaged in, right? particularly when um, we are trying to, I'm saying we, the royal we, trying to feature... Artistic process. Um, Because, but you know, by the very fact of uh, inframing, you want to free that up to happen, but then you're inframing it. So we're already engaged in a kind of failure, and and that interests me. (laughs) And I think that, um, uh, you know, I don't mean to presuppose uh, part of the curatorial agenda of the nine to fivers, but you know I think that the the conceit of the of the office sort of allowed them to do that in a very poignant and playful way is to is to, is to foreground the complete artificiality of this in such a way that they sort of subtended that whole question and and sort of moved beyond it um, but your question Stephanie also makes me think about uh, and something I didn't talk about in this lecture uh, the kind of obsession with um, artist residencies where the artist is incorporated into the institution. And that's come up a little bit here today of, you know, I don't know whether it's a good idea or not idea, a good idea or something. But there, um, really in the last 10 years especially, we've seen so much of this where um, this idea of liveness and studioness are, are now being brought into um, public situations to sort of demystify that idea of practice. But there are a couple of really interesting examples of artists who um, are now really enjoying what, what one might think of as a new kind of institutional critique um, when accepting these invitations. And I'm thinking in particular about um, one that I, uh, a project I happen to know a little bit about um, because I, I interviewed him, talked to Mike Nelson, who's a, a British artist. And he was invited by the Camden Arts Center some years ago, I think 2004, to do one of the Artist in Residency projects where he would be live in the gallery. And um, Nelson being Nelson, there are two uh, kind of guiding tenets to his practice. One is it involves a lot of stuff. Like a lot of stuff, and secondly, there's always some very ironic literary reference to all of his projects. So um, he found this invitation quite amusing in a way because he, at that point, had no actual studio practice. Um, he, he um, and I think still to this day, works out of his house. And he, because he gets these invitations to do very, very large urban projects or projects where he's just he's building entire um, settings. And so he, he's sort of nomadic anyhow. So when he moved into the Camden Arts Center, um, he uh, set up this project that he called the Studio Apparatus. And he, it's sort of complicated, but he based this idea on a Jules Verne novel where Verne is actually um, sort of self-reflexively parodying his own writing. And so Nelson was parodying his own practice as a builder um, who's being invited to, to come and do this project. So he linked this idea of of a kind of ironic self-reflection with another literary reference, and that was to Franz Kafka's The Burrow. And if anybody's read the short story The Burrow, it's this incredibly tense short story of this guy who's, well, this creature, who's um, convinced that he is going to be somehow found out or discovered or harmed. And so he, um, in fact, his anxiety is pretty much the entire story. So he builds this, he lives in this burrow. So Nelson built this crazy um, uh, structure um, inside the gallery space, almost like a gigantic fort made of every piece of crap that he'd been collecting for all of these other projects. And... um, he hid himself inside the studio apparatus so that when when the visitors came in to look at him, he was looking at them, and like that was the project that was that was him at work because his work was to watch them and make sure that they didn 't get into his burrow so yeah it 's a long way to to talk about this. Um, I think there, there are some really interesting um, subversions now by artists of these invitations to come and do a residency and sort of be on show. And um, I, I know, in just a brief conversation I had with uh, particularly Graham yesterday, we were talking about you know what is and it came up the, today on the panel with a bunch of a bunch of you guys, what is it like to sort of be <laughs> the dancing pair um, and there were questions around performativity I mean do I perform as an artist at work? do I perform as myself um, am I my, myself and i 'm performing my identity in a in a judith butler kind of way anyway and so i think that there are a lot of these questions um that really come to the fore when uh when we ask art when we ask artists to engage in liveness um in a kind of faux studio environment you know studio in quotation marks because i think that can be um, broadly defined now um but you know what does that what does that whole practice mean and um I think the museums and, and galleries need to sort of think about how they can maybe even meet the artist's playful subversions with another playful subversion and, you know, let's, let's do this thing. Let's kind of engage in a 21st century discussion about liveness and genius and see what we can do. Pam, you're going to ask me a hard one. No, I'm not. Okay. I
0: <laughs> yes, this, I, I know... Um, Yeah, I know. Well, we go back a long way. (laughs) Kelly and Rebecca and I were all in museum studies education together. together, (laughs) So we do go back a long way. Um, No, I was actually thinking, Mm -hmm. this has been so interesting for me hearing this within this context because Mm. I've been playing with the idea of performativity and performance Mm. as pedagogy. Right. Um, And so I've been interested in looking at the artist i e myself, for example, yes. as artist as performance artist, so uh-huh. the idea of, of the live artist, uh-huh. the artist is image, and then the context or ground, uh-huh. and how each of those elements um, are subject to change, uh-huh. so in a sense, that whole configuration is not it 's kind of this triangulation, uh-huh. if we will speak in research terms, uh-huh. which is totally unstable uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I think that 's what I find so interesting uh-huh. about practice is that You know we just have to step outside the AGO and speak again and that changes so that you know because all of a sudden we're not in the same kind of quote context or ground yeah Um, so I think that also becomes interesting for me is that constant that nothing is stable yeah there is that constant shift yeah yeah Um, I think
2: you know that connects to these ideas of enframed that we were talking about and in a in a non-live non-human way um, it might be worthwhile to mention uh, a project many years ago that Fred Wilson did where not, not with the performativity of people but the performativity of material culture he, he curated um, sort of three separate spaces one was the white cube space one was a kind of natural history gallery and another one was meant to look like a kind of um, salon setting and he curated contemporary works of art into each one of those rooms and visitors to the space thought that they were different works from different eras based on what the architecture of the room spoke to them. So those literal processes of enframing and contextualizing work can make us see that work so totally differently. And so I think you could argue the same exact thing can happen uh, with, with live bodies, but... Um, you know in this, this this kind of identity shift that can happen because of the contextualization of of those practices
0: didn 't you write to this is now we 're going back again, yeah. but didn 't you write a paper at one point about the the museum or the narrative of the museum? I know it was. It, um. Do you know the piece? I mean, it was the one before you did the, you know, the Foucault piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I remember thinking, yeah. thinking about that, too, disrupting the museum disrupting narrative. The museum I'm sure it was narrative. really postmodern. Oh whatever yeah, it was. It. Was, that I was yeah. saying. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I just wanted to sort of reassert this whole issue around research. Um, I ran into it myself, as both an artist and also as a sort of a doctoral research person candidate, you know, because I I do. I actually, the interesting thing is I teach both at OCAD and at U of T. At OCAD I'm not allowed to apply for research funding, but I am allowed to apply up to SHIRT grants. Mm. So I can apply for a $500,000 SHIRT grant at the University of Toronto, but I'm not allowed to at OCAD. So it's interesting Mm. you know, how institutions frame research as well. Um, And I found the experience myself as an artist, I had been invited to come and speak with Faith Wilding, Mm. Um, at the Center for Performance Research in Aberystwyth. And I was basically told Mm. by one of the more conventional white male curators that um, as an artist, he didn't know I was also an academic as well, but he said as an artist, that really it was not my place to speak to research. I was not trained Mm. to speak to research. So there really was that kind of sense that you had to have Mm -hmm. a doctorate. This is Mm -hmm. what you're trained for. You're trained to be to speak of theory, but as an artist, no. So he said, in other words, his comment to me was, which was really blatant, was that, well, would you ask a ditch digger to comment about his or her practice? And I said, well, yes, I would, actually, because he or she has first-hand experience. And it would be interesting for me to hear what that reflection would be. So anyway, mm-hmm. it was interesting mm-hmm. just in the context yeah. of this, of how research is framed and yeah. how institutions frame it and who owns it and who doesn't own it. Yeah. Which was, is, is, so thank you for that comment. Mm-hmm.
9: Yeah. Price right <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, I'm just going to ask my OCAD bosses last question because it's 4.30.
10: I I really enjoyed your talk. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, The word performativity kept coming up, Mm. and uh, I have a problem with that word Mm -hmm. just because I I feel at the end uh, that may not be the most important. It's the experience that I walked away with and the experience possibly that the visitors had walked away with. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a genuineness there that didn't feel like it's artificially constructed, yeah. even though it is an artificially constructed site where mm-hmm. we're working, and I, I felt I was being, I was making my stuff, and that's how I would do it in my studio s- space, even though the environment's very different, my processes, however they come about, yeah. you know, is an extension uh, from from that space, yeah. that site.
2: Well, I think it's interesting that, all, th- I mean, from what I could tell, all three of you decided to really just try to be yourselves, I mean, as much as possible. I mean, you, you could have engaged in something that was performance. And I think um, maybe just to reflect on language a little bit, and I'm not an expert, but when I'm using the word performativity, I'm, I'm, I mean in a kind of Judith Butler sense where sure. um, we're not engaged in a performance, but we are, each of us, every time we engage intersubjectively with one another, we are... Re-establishing and renegotiating our own identities with one another and with ourselves. Sure, I understand. And and that's why you know I appreciate what you're saying. These um these really genuine interactions with with the public um, who came to to talk with you and in an interesting way. And again, I don't want to presume anything for these visitors, but one wonders how. they might have thought that they were supposed to perform a mm-hmm. role, mm-hmm. and you may have put them at ease in such a way that they real that they went from performance to performativity. They could just be themselves as well, and and right. and were stretching, you know, their ideas of what what an artist does or what an art artist works at. Um, so I think that's why you know projects like this are, are really interesting.
10: Thank you.
9: Before I hand over the mic to our hosts, um, I wanted to say a couple things on behalf of the hosting institution. Um, I wanted to say on behalf of myself, Kelly McKinley, um, Michelle Jakes, and Carrie Ryan, the three people here at the AGO that convene and facilitate uh, the course inside the AGO, of which 9 to 5 is the culminating project. It has been an absolute pleasure and delight to work with these three students who I think have most definitely left an imprint on this institution. There was a question in the panel (laughs) There was a question at the panel about um, the institutional imprint on the artists and the curators but I think um, it would be appropriate just if I might for a moment talk about how this project has imprinted on, certainly on me and I think, um, I won't speak for my colleagues but Uh, We've talked about this to a certain extent, about how it's going to imprint on us and as we work. Um, We talk to about 3,000 visitors every year about their experience at the AGO. And it tends to be an overwhelming, very positive response to the AGO. And we always ask them, which aspect of your visit most um, strongly shaped your experience today? Was it Frank Gehry's architecture, was it the coffee, was it our pithy labels, Um, was it our temporary exhibition program? And the overwhelming uh, first response on the part of our visitors is conversations that they have with staff and volunteers about art. And I think what this project does... um, it tells us as an institution is that we have to work all the harder to create a context for authentic conversation in the galleries. Conversation that starts with where the visitors are, um, not where we we are or where we want them to start. And I think that's what this project did. And I think, you know, Zach and and, um, Mary and Catherine's sense of conflict as curators being in the space, I think pushes us in a very interesting way because we produce projects... Um, all the time and we talk about the success and failures of exhibitions but the irony of that is that it's very rarely based on real experience of how the visitors interacted with those projects because we spend ultimately very little time as curators in my case interpreters and educators in the space talking to visitors and listening to visitors. So that's a little bit about how you guys and your work as curators and the three of you as artists, how you're going to imprint on our work and our thinking and our practice. And thank you very much.
6: I wanted to take this opportunity to thank Rebecca for coming down from Montreal. I don't think we could have asked for a better keynote speaker. That was so engaging, um, and I think for everyone in the audience, very interesting. So, thank you again for coming and joining us. Um, I wanted to extend a thank you to the AGO and to OCAD for creating this opportunity for myself, Mary, and Zach. It's been a tremendous pleasure and a real learning experience over the last eight months. Um, and in particular to Kelly McKinley, Michelle Jakes, and Carrie Ryan for their support and guidance in this endeavor. We've really enjoyed working with the three of you. And finally, a thank you to the artists. Um, The genuine nature of your personalities, your engagement with art, and your interest in visitors has been the success of this project. And we have really enjoyed speaking with you, interacting with you, and hopefully becoming friends with you. So thank you so much for that. (laughs) And I just want to say to Mary and Zach, it's been a pleasure for me to work with you guys, and I hope the same, that it's been a great collaborative curating experience. And finally, my last thank you is to the audience who's joined us here today. Thank you for coming out and engaging in conversation with us. That has been the cusp of all of these different aspects of the project. We have a closing reception this evening from six to nine at Studio, which is a presentation center at Aspen Ridge Homes, located on Duncan Street just south of Richmond. They've kindly loaned us their model home from which we can go and rest after a hard week of work. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.